I'm Kim Carson. And I'm Peter Klein. And this is We Had No Idea. Episode four. Four, baby. <laughs> this one, not as fun as the, the last couple that we have had. Well, don't set us up for a failure. Oh, sorry. Sorry. But also. No, it is a huge bummer. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. No, definitely yeah. a downer. Uh, definitely a downer. So to start off, thank you so, so much. Right. Coming back for more week after week for almost a month. We appreciate you so much. Thank you so much wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you wanted to rate, review, subscribe, we'd love that. For the research for today's episode, we would like to thank, among a number of others, uh, World Atlas, University of Minnesota, your dictionary. Your personal the... dictionary. <laughs> okay. Uh, Theculturetrip.com, the BBC all that's interesting.com, Al Jazeera, killingfields.com, and Minnesota Historical Society. And I know you have a little bit more to, to say about that. Yes. So uh, the Minnesota Historical Society. Well, I, sorry, I don't think we've actually even said, you know what this episode is about from right, the title. There, but there this is a title. Is... Uh, on some platforms, there's a different picture. <laughs> but this is uh, about the killing fields in Cambodia, this episode will be. Um, so. During the research, I found this um, historical society, and I encourage you to go look them up. It's a, it's a great website that actually has about 20 interviews with people who survived the Khmer Rouge uh, regime, and the stories are just absolutely wild. I, I think there's 16 hours of the interviews and then they're all in transcripts as well. So I obviously did not have time to listen to all of them, but the ones that I did listen to, it's just absolutely wild that people experience this and that, you know, it was only 50 years ago. Yeah. It, it wasn't that long ago. So these people are, you know, some of them are still alive uh, as you'll find out a lot of them are not, but yeah, it's just mind blowing that you can hear firsthand accounts of what these people went through. So if you're interested after the podcast in learning more about the killing fields uh, and hearing first point perspectives from Cambodians who survived, please go to the Minnesota Historical Society Oral History Project. And yeah, it's just a great place to hear some really sad stuff that actually happened to these people. Yeah, some extremely sad stuff. And again, as we said off the top, this one's going to be a little bit more difficult of a listen. And it was certainly much more difficult of a research task. And there was a few times we just had to stop and just... Mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, and just kind of keep going because yeah. Yeah, it is... Not great, but uh, something that you said was that if we just, if we only did happy stuff, there wouldn't be much of a history podcast. We wouldn't so. have a history podcast. It turns out history is a huge fucking bummer, dude. Right. Just very, very sad. All of it. Most of it. Most of it. Yes. Yeah. It's either sad or it's stupid and we can make fun of it. That's yeah. basically it. <laughs> you tell us, rate, review, subscribe, and tell us which one you think this episode's going to be. <laughs> okay, so... Let's get into this. The first thing I want to start off with is I was fairly unclear, like, you know, the basics between communism and fascism and right wing and left left wing. But I was like, well, the Khmer Rouge regime was communist, but I don't understand why they were killing people. Like, I didn't really get it. So uh, I would like to start off with just some definitions that helped me understand what happened. So uh, fascism 
like the Nazis, like Japan in World War II. And if you want to know more about that, you can listen to our first episode. Oh, a little callback. <laughs> Fascism is a government system led by one person, a dictator who has complete power over the country. Uh, it would also be like a totalitarian government. Citizens of fascist countries must surrender their individual liberties and have extreme allegiance to their leader. Communism, unlike fascism, is a government that focuses on equal treatment and opportunity for all citizens. I mean, it sounds great on paper. It turns out it's not. It opposes capitalism, which encourages private profit and the empowerment of the individual. So with communism, there is an element of authoritarianism. The first phase of a communist state is usually revolution. So overthrowing whatever government was in control before you get there, uh, followed by a period of authoritarian control, which would be phase two before surrendering that control back to the people, phase three. No modern communist state has been able to move from phase two into phase three as the leaders have held on to their control. Greedy, greedy bastards. Communists believe that the government must intervene heavily in citizens' lives to keep them from achieving more than others. So this would include control over education, employment, who you marry, where your family is. It's far left ideology with far right tactics. The concepts of social equality and sharing resources are fundamental part of a far left ideology. However, when we see this implemented in modern societies, it limits individual freedom and it's closer to the right side of the political spectrum. Communism also has a focus on international influence. It's not meant to be held within one country's borders. It's supposed to be a global ideology. And that, that is why you, you hear a lot of places like, oh, we need to fight against communism. It, it's mm -hmm. not like we need these people inside this place to believe what we believe. It is we need to have them not make us believe what they believe, kind of. Yeah, so just keep in mind some of that stuff uh, as we go through this podcast, especially the authoritarianism aspect of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of that in this particular episode. So, yes, today's episode, The Killing Fields. We start our remarkably depressing journey in 1953 with Cambodia, obviously, and King Sihanouk proclaiming independence from France. He soon abdicates to go into politics. After the French withdraw from Cambodia, the king becomes the country's new leader of the Popular Socialist Party. Through the 1960s, he struggles to keep Cambodia neutral as neighboring countries of Laos and and South Vietnam come under increasing communist attack during the Vietnam War. The Khmer Rouge regime is formed in 1960. It's based in remote jungles and mountain areas in the northeast of the country. Uh, this group initially made little headway during this time in the remote northeast. The party's leader, Pol Pot, which is a major tongue twister, and I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, he was originally born Salath Sar. But he's Pol Pot Not, now. Neither of those are easy to pronounce. No, no, no. This is, this might be harder than Massachusetts. Good. Damn, I nailed that. Yeah. Um, anyways, Pol Pot had been influenced by the surrounding hill tribes. He saw that they were self-sufficient in their communal living. They had no use for money and they were untainted by Buddhism. He had studied in France previously and he was aware of Marxist, Maoist, and communist ideologies. So he kind of sees this and thinks that it might be better than what they're going through. Yeah, the, the, this is definitely a a learned kind of, behavior is the wrong term, yeah. but a, a learned ideology preference along yeah. the way. Um, 
back to uh, our pal King Sihanouk as he has given considerable power to his defense minister and supreme commander of the army, Lieutenant General Lon Noel, who later overthrew the king as the head of state. Uh, king Sihanouk is sent into exile in Beijing, China, soon after the queue... Uh, Soon after the coup, South Vietnam and the United States use Cambodia as another battleground against the communist Cambodia, no longer just a, a neutral state. In 1969, secret U.S. bombing uh, starts on Vietnam communist bases in Cambodia, and that kind of sets off a, a number of different events. So in 1970, Khmer Rouge, led by Pol Pot, enters into a political coalition and they begin to attract increasing support. They, they sorry to, to interrupt, they yeah. basically tag in for the, the king who has been exiled. They're like, yes. hey, we'll, we'll, we'll take it from here. Totally. Because there is like, this is all basically a lead up. There's a huge civil war happening um, and that's why the mm -hmm. king is sent to exile. That's why the his defense general is the one who overthrows him. It's a big civil war, um, which really only feeds the fire as to why the Khmer Rouge gets power. Yeah. So some of their support comes from the actions of the U.S. helping the South Vietnamese army fight in Cambodia. They're using air strikes that destroy villages and kill thousands of civilians. This angers and endangers many Cambodians. And when fighting breaks out between La Nol's troops, the guy that overthrew the king, and the Khmer Rouge communists, this adds more anger for Cambodians as to why their military is attacking its own people, which grows more support for the Khmer Rouge. They take over the capital and therefore the entire nation in mm. 1975. Lan Nol is, uh, he flees to Hawaii and the Khmer Rouge seize power fully in 1975. During this time and during a lot of the, the time in the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge got most of their funding from the Communist Party of China. It is estimated that about 90% of the foreign aid to the Khmer Rouge come or came from China. The Khmer regime, it's only four years from 1979 or 1975 to 1979. We'll explain a little bit later that that's not necessarily the exact endpoint, but like firmly in control yeah. is it, that is one of the things that while researching, like so much death, so much destruction, and it was just a four-year span in yeah. just one country. Yeah. Following the takeover in 1975, Khmer Rouge leader Pol Pot renames the country the Democratic Kampuchea. I just want to throw in here really quick that um, when Khmer Rouge forces take over the capital, Phnom Penh, they literally are marching people out of the city. It's part of what they want. They want to create an agrarian society. So they're marching people out of the cities to go work in agriculture. They're going to all farm and that's how everyone's going to be equal. Mm -hmm. So one of the stories that I did read from the Kamar Oral History Project from that Minnesota Historical Society uh, is the story of a woman who was living with her cousin and there was just soldiers in the street and they were saying, there's going to be no more civil war. And so, you know, they feel kind of excited about that. But then all of a sudden, these same soldiers are like, there's going to be no more civil war, but we need you to leave your house right now. Mm -hmm. And they just start marching them out of the city. Yeah, th there's quite the, uh, with anything, like not everyone's going to be 100% on board, but the, the promise was peace after years of civil wars, bombing campaigns from the United States. So when the, the soldiers are marching through, some people 
are like just hey yeah this is great fantastic that they actually like flock to the streets to welcome them in while others try to flee the country rushing to the border with thailand while others flooded the gates of the french embassy and to your point pol pot immediately starts isolating people from the rest of the world saying they are starting at year zero he empties cities abolishes money and private property and religion, and basically everyone is sent off to rural areas. Anyone that was thought to be an intellectual of any kind was killed. Often people were condemned for wearing glasses or knowing a foreign language. They're rounding up anyone who did anything that could be seen as capitalist. So selling a product or talking to anyone from the world beyond Cambodian borders, they're treated like they're, what's the word? It's an act of treason, but they're, you're not a treasonist. Anyways, <laughs> they're acts of treason. Uh, the Khmer Rouge regime arrests and eventually executes almost everyone suspected of connections with the former government or with foreign governments. Ethnic Vietnamese, Thai, Chinese, Cambodian Christians, and Buddhist monks are targets of persecution. And it's reported that ethnic Cham Muslims in Cambodia, about 80% of their population is killed during this time. It's because of this that Pol Pot is described as a genocidal tyrant, and this is where the killing fields are created. People were shot or brutally tortured until they died. Hundreds of thousands of the educated middle classes were tortured or executed in special centers. The most notorious of these centers was the S-21 jail in Phnom Penh, Tuol Slang, was the name of the prison, where as many as 17,000 men, women, and children were imprisoned during the regime's four years in power. This is actually one of the biggest tourist spots today. Hundreds of thousands of others died from disease, starvation, or exhaustion as members of the Khmer Rouge forced people to do back-breaking work. The uh, judicial process for the, the Khmer Rouge regime as you can imagine, not necessarily the most fair mm -hmm. as minor or <laughs> political <don't> <laughs> crimes yeah, began with a warning from the government of Cambodia under the regime. People receiving more than two warnings were sent for re-education, which meant you're probably going to die. Now, people were also encouraged to confess their pre-revolutionary lifestyles and crimes. So again, selling things, talking to almost literally anyone. And if you were to, to come forward with these, they said that the government would forgive you and, quote, wipe the slate clean. They were then taken away to a place and probably tortured or executed. Mm -hmm. Some victims were required to dig their own graves. Because they were so weak, that meant they were unable to dig all that deep. Uh, some children, meanwhile, were again killed against tree trunks thrown into the mass graves where their parents laid. The soldiers who carried out the execution were mostly young men or women from peasant families. So this episode is actually a suggestion from my sister who went to Cambodia and she went to see the killing fields and the genocide museum um, that is the S-21 prison. And some of these trees are actually still there. So you can see the ground around the prison and around the killing fields is kind of lumpy. And that's because they are just mass graves. And the trees that stand in between all these graves were these killing trees that they would like smash babies off of and just like throw them in pits. So just like absolutely 
awful shit. Yeah, just horrifying, horrifying conditions Mm -hmm. that these people lived in for a brief amount of time and then likely killed rather quickly. Uh, There's uh, about 300 fields like this throughout Cambodia, the largest of which is Chung Ek, which sits on the outskirts of Phnom Penh and today serves as a monument to all those who died and those who survived. It is a tall, almost pagoda-like structure with skulls lining the walls, not just a couple of them, like hundreds of thousands of skulls from ceiling to floor. I saw some pictures of this while we were doing research and it is haunting. It looks like something out of a movie, like where pirates would go for buried yeah. treasure or, or something like that. Not a real life place that real life human beings had to deal with. Totally. And I have a side note here. Um, when I was looking at pictures of this place and I had a similar experience when I was in Vietnam, I went to the war museum that's there. And you know, when you take a picture, when, when you're a tourist and you take a picture of something and then it's like, oh, get in the photo and I'll take a photo of you with the thing. Well, if you look up photos of Chung Ek, there's people like posing and smiling in front of it. It's one thing to document your trip there by taking pictures of it, but doing like the smiling while pointing like eh, at a, a mass grave site. I, I wouldn't just yeah. for the record, like That's just my, my official stance on this is don't. In 1979, the Khmer Rouge aims outwards with the goal of creating a new empire. Again, one of those rules of communism is that it can't be contained or it shouldn't be contained just within your borders. It's meant to spread. This led to attacking the newly unified Vietnam, which eventually provokes the country's army to invade Cambodia. There was a series of violent border confrontations and Cambodia's UNESCO site of Angkor Wat, although mainly unharmed by the brutalities the country faced, does still have a few bullet holes on its outer walls today from these Vietnamese Khmer Rouge battles. I just imagine that at this point, Vietnam has been through it. By 1979, they've had a war with everyone that's not necessarily their own doing, but other countries trying to claim their land. You have the Japanese in World War II making life awful. You have the Allies bombing them to hurt the Japanese forces during World War II. They have a year-long famine where thousands starve to death. There's a the 20-year American-Vietnamese war that they just got out of. Like I imagine the Khmer Rouge knock on their door and Vietnam's like, no, absolutely fucking not. Yeah. Like, they have like, had it by this mm-hmm. point. Just like, really? another And just <laughs> steamroll them. Like, just, no, we're yeah. not doing this. We're just going to, like, just sit down. Yeah, by that early... Basically, yeah. Yeah, it's early 1979 when the Khmer Rouge looks to spread outwards. And by late 1979, the Vietnamese armies have seized Phnom Penh back, pushing the Khmer Rouge into the jungles and ending the genocide for all intents and purposes. The higher members of the Khmer Rouge party retreat to remote areas of the country where they remain active but gradually do become less and less powerful. Also in 1979, with the success of the Vietnamese invasion, a former Khmer Rouge leader, Heng Semrin, 
led a successful revolt against Pol Pot, taking over as Cambodia's president and communist leader. The occupation by Vietnam, the support from China, and the fact that the Khmer Rouge held power in many parts of rural Cambodia for more than a decade after the Vietnam invasion further complicated the international reaction to the genocide, but as Cambodia began the process of reopening to the international community, the full horrors of the regime mm -hmm. became very apparent. Survivors shock audiences with their stories in the 1980s Hollywood movie The Killing Fields, which brings the plight of the Khmer Rouge victims to worldwide attention. The Killing Fields is a title given by Dith Pran, who is a writer who survived the genocide and is the subject of the movie The Killing Fields. So as we mentioned, like they are only fully in power for four years. And mm -hmm. we'll get to the, the final numbers in a second. And it is horrifying, the damage that was done mm -hmm. in four years. But the, the process after was a long and I would suggest rather emotionally taxing one yeah. for people in this area. As Pol Pot was denounced by his former comrades in a show trial in July of 1997, mm -hmm. so almost 20 years after the fact, he was sentenced to house arrest in his jungle home. Less than a year later, he died. So millions of people who were looking for justice were denied that as uh, he passes away before a, a full sentence can, uh, I guess, be laid out. Mm -hmm. With all the trials that have happened since 1997 and... Um, there was a, a whole ministry board set up for this in 2008 and 2009. Uh, actually, only three Khmer Rouge leaders have ever been sentenced. One died during the trials and one was deemed unfit for trial due to his dementia. So there was five, but only three have actually been sentenced. Not so fun fact, one of the men that has been sentenced was actually a prison guard at the S21 prison and he oversaw about 15,000 deaths. As we mentioned before, other countries had issues with how to handle this whole situation, and the Khmer Rouge actually held Cambodia's United Nations seat until 1993. Now, Cambodia has made the transition back to a functioning democracy since its constitution was ratified in 93 as part of the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia operation. The country still has a difficult time addressing the crimes of the past. It's reported that Cambodia struggles to this day with the trials. Some see it as a waste of money, a performative action to bring people to justice, but who have lived most of their lives free. There's also a struggle with making these atrocious acts into tourist spots. Uh, the prison in Phnom Penh S21 is now a genocide history museum where people can see photographs of some of the people killed, uh, the way prisoners lived, and some of the killing trees. It really is a double-edged sword you want to share the story of these people and what happened for four years and even 10 years of the Vietnamese occupation afterwards, but you also don't want to make light of what happened to mm -hmm. to anybody that lost their lives during the Khmer Rouge regime, which actually is about 1.3 million, estimated up to 2 million total. So... Cambodia at the time had a population of 8 million, so that leaves us to deduce that a quarter of Cambodia's population was murdered in the four years of yeah. the Khmer Rouge regime. Just absolutely mind-boggling to wrap your head around mm -hmm. just how quickly 
that all changed. And you just wonder, like, what was the end goal of all of this? If you're just wiping your entire population out or a quarter of your population out in four years, like, yeah. what is, what's the end goal of this whole thing? And that's certainly something that is always going to be tough to, to wrap your head around when it comes to, to these sorts of things. And yeah, how do you... How do you address this in your own like culture? How do you address this in your own country? To, to your point, you want to have something that's like a, hey, th this is a thing that happened, but you also don't want it to just be like people just posing with these things or whatever, yeah. to, making light of it. Uh, I thought just to, to go back to previous episodes, like when we were in Hiroshima, I thought they did a very good job. The rest of the city is very vibrant while there, there's actually a, a spot where it's, hey, this is a bad thing that happened. Here's a museum educating people on this because you, you, you need to, to educate people on what has happened and the risks of what can happen if the wrong people get in charge. Mm -hmm. history, so. history is how we learn. Exactly. Yes. So you, you don't want to just completely, oh yeah, no, it never happened. Why, are you, why were entire families and entire generations wiped out? Don't worry about it. You, you have to have something, but you also don't want that constant reminder. And I would imagine having trials 20, 30 years after the fact would just be mentally taxing. Like at some, at some point you need to be able to let the healing start. And I feel mm -hmm. like if you have trials that are going on that long, you never really are able to let that healing process start. Yeah. I want to mention the downfall of this regime was that first off, they provoked Vietnam and Vietnam was like, we have had a fuck enough. Yeah. But I also want to mention that just like w in World War II with Hitler, we see these tyrants get so paranoid. And the fact that two million people were killed in four years and a lot of those are like people that you see as intellectuals, it really kind of drives home the paranoia and the sheltering that needs to happen in these societies for these ideologies to exist. In the case of Pol Pot, they just get so paranoid and anyone who says anything about the regime, you're dead. How do you ever keep... It's not a sustainable ideology. You're no. just killing everybody. Yeah. At some point. No, exactly. And it's just... Uh, I think that paranoia is... Uh, an interesting thing to take from this because like you don't you don't put that strict of limitations on a the educational level of people but mm -hmm. all be, because anyone with that level of education would know this is ridiculous um yeah, this but, is wrong but also to any contact to the outside world and then on top of that even if in the past you sold stuff, you were killed. Like th that yeah. is just, it's absolutely just a, another level of this whole thing. And again, just adds to the, the sadness of, of, of it all. That it was just because of this paranoid guy who gets in. Because again, th this is one of those desperate times calls for desperate measures sort of thing. And it's people offering a solution. That's something that we came across in, in World War II where, I mean, both Germany and Japan were quite desperate because of different situations. And now in this one, you, you have a, a place that's gone through rather dramatic upheavals in government in the yeah. last 20 years and are, are starting to become just like a, a military zone for a war that you're not necessarily a part of. Mm -hmm. And people get extremely desperate. And it, it's just, it, it's sad that it comes to 
it's sad. It's incredibly sad that it comes to this sort of a thing. We do hope that you found some enjoyment out of hearing about this. I know that this was a really dark story and that it's hard to. Yeah. It's also one that, again, the the title of the podcast, we had no idea. I literally had no idea. Yeah. I, this Researching this was the first I had ever heard of any of this stuff. So that this yeah. was certainly a dark part of world history that was brand new to me and will probably haunt me for a while because it's uh, again going back and seeing some of the pictures and reading yeah. all of the different stories like it it is just so so tough i can't imagine being one of the the few who was able to live through it and again if you want to hear those stories that's the minnesota historical society kamar rouge oral history project a quick google will get you there and it's yeah, some of the stories are just wild and it's absolutely horrifying. But to hear them from the perspective of the person that experienced them is just makes it that much more impactful. So yeah, hopefully th this taught you something because I learned a lot going back over, over all of this. Yeah, and same. I really had no idea about this either. Yeah. I think that we can co conclusively say for this one. We had no idea. Right. Yes. Uh, so hopefully you were able to learn something from this today. Again, thank you for downloading and for listening. You can rate, review, subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We really do appreciate it. If you have any thoughts you can uh, or topic suggestions, you can email them our way. Oh, sorry. At we had no idea podcast at gmail.com. Everything is spelled the way you want to spell it. Yeah. We had no idea podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Right? Yep. Okay, nailed it. <laughs> Yours will be our email and mine will be Massachusetts. Yes. Which I am just nailing yeah, today. Yeah, you're... Again, once again, you're, you are absolutely showing off. Uh, <laughs> so yes, any... Look at, look at me pronounce words. Uh, basically, every time, <laughs> uh, aside from the, the first episode, every episode since has been a by request. So if you have yeah. any requests, send them again. We had no idea podcast at gmail.com. You got it, dude. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it. Thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you again next week. Bye. Is that it? Oh, no, that's it.